When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Good morning, welcome to the daily football briefing from The Athletic. It's Friday, the 3rd of November. I'm Adam Leventhal. Today we ask How secure is Eric Ten Hag's position at Manchester United? We're at that stage with Eric Ten Hag in that it is not all his fault. However, some of this is on him. Is Arsenal's trip to Newcastle a litmus test? There's a lot of pressure on them going into this game to see how they. They bounce back to really the first proper blow this season. And we preview Harry Kane's first De Classica. There's still a lot of room for him to grow into though and it's um, it's by no means the finished product. We're still really waiting for Kane to really be Kane a Bayern. This is the Daily Football Briefing with Adam Leventhal. We'll also explain Australia's role in Saudi Arabia being handed the World Cup in 2034. So there's plenty to get through. On The Athletic today, there's a detailed piece on Manchester United manager Eric Ten Hag and the pressure on his position. One of the authors of the article is our Manchester United writer Carl Anker, who joins us now. So it gives us the state of play after a really difficult week amid a really difficult season for the club and the Dutchman at the helm as they prepare for the early kickoff on Saturday against Fulham. First question, Carl, pretty simple. Is his position under immediate threat? No. As far as the Athletic understands, Eric Ten Hag is not under any immediate threat for his job. Things are looking ominous, but I can say with quite confidence, I do not believe that Manchester United are exploring in a serious manner any Ten Hag successor. We know that the mood among fans at Old Trafford, we saw that against Newcastle, it cleared out after around about 70 minutes, is very, very flat. How about the players? Are they still on board with Ten Hag's message? It's an odd one in that these were a group of players that last season were on record saying how much they enjoyed playing on the Ten Hag, how they really, really appreciated the structure and the discipline that they brought. Um, whereas now, when you're looking at the game, this is a group of players that look disheartened. They look confused. They look overburdened by the the amount of rules and discipline these are two words Ten Hag speaks about. I do not sit in that dressing room, so I can't tell you for sure if the players are going, I'm not having Eric Ten Hag, but they certainly do not appear as responsive to his tactical methods as they used to be. What's also interesting is that Eric Ten Hag's tactical methods aren't what they used to be even compared to January. The the player rotations and the settled possession that were so obvious in the better parts of last season have nearly completely erased right now. So it, it's it's very difficult. What you've got here is a collection of players who are who look confused and a little bit fearful about what to do next. This indecision over what to do next has perhaps been brought forward by Ten Hag's muddled communication in recent weeks. I think his press conferences have become uh, a little bit more eyebrow-raising. And then the indecision is costing you more than the initial mistakes you're making in the football field. And unfortunately, something you saw against Newcastle and something you also saw against Manchester City is the last five or ten minutes of these games where Manchester United are losing games, things are sending into petulance, where, where players seem more interested in fighting the referee and fighting the opposition rather than trying to change the scoreline. 
And how much is Eric Ten Hag actually to blame for this current mess that Manchester United are in? I like to use the the phrase, uh, it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. And I think that we're, we're at that stage with Eric Ten Hag in that it is not all his fault that Manchester United are a dysfunctional mess. It's not entirely his fault that this squad has a collection of players that don't all mesh to one agreeable, discernible playing style. However, he has been in charge for three transfer windows now, two summer transfer windows. He spent north of 330 million. And some of this is on him. If if you're looking at, you know, he, he gave an interview to, to Dutch media after the defeat against Manchester City and he said Manchester United will never play like Ajax because he believes they don't have the players. He said this before and that's okay. It's okay to not make every team like Ajax. Ajax have a particularly pronounced way of playing. You have to play in a 4-3-3. You have to be good in possession and whatnot. And he believes that Manchester United can play a bit more direct because United's best players are like Marcus Rashford, like Bruno Fernandes. However, you're looking at this squad and you're going to Ten Hag. You did spend a lot of money on Anthony. You did spend a lot of money on Casemiro. You did spend a lot of money on Mason Mount. And these are players that are either underperforming, like say Anthony or, or Casemiro, or all of a sudden seem superfluous to what your plan is in Mason Mount. He says he doesn't want to make excuses, but a lot of Ten Hag's explanation as to why the team are not playing well, you want to go, well, isn't it your job to fix that? And at the moment, Ten Hag goes, I know it's my job to fix it. And he still hasn't quite given me an answer as to what he plans to do to fix that. Okay, more from Carl and our United writers on the app our website, and also the Talk of the Devils podcast. If you want to watch a man and a team under pressure on Saturday, United at Fulham is the 12.30 kickoff on TNT Sports in the UK. The rest of the live action across the weekend is on Sky Sports, also on Monday. In the US, you can see the Premier League on NBC, USA Network, and also Peacock. The big Saturday evening kickoff is Newcastle in sixth, against Arsenal in second. And both sides had differing fortunes in the Carabao Cup in midweek. Newcastle won convincingly 3-0 against Manchester United, but Arsenal, they lost against West Ham. And Jordan Campbell was at that game at the London Stadium, and he joins us now. Now, Mikel Arteta wants his side to feel the pain of that defeat against West Ham. That's what he said. So it sounds as if he's already getting them wound up and motivated. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of people look at that defeat and say, oh, well, how much do Arsenal really care about it? Um, it's not the most important trophy they're going for this season, but I think you saw in Arteta's reaction and in his body language in the press conference yesterday that, yeah, he might have rested six of his best players, but he still wanted to get through that competition with, with Manchester City already being out. You know, it was wide open for Arsenal to go and win a trophy they have not won in 30 years. So it's only their second, second defeat in all competitions all season. So... Yeah, I think there's a lot of pressure on them going into this game to see how they they bounce back to really the first proper blow this season. Newcastle, you know, really strong side at home. I think only Liverpool and Arsenal have beat them there since the the start of last season. So they'll know how tough a challenge it is to go there. And, you know, he says feel the pain. I think what they didn't do uh, last night was was basically didn't win the battle and he said they didn't compete. And if you don't do that against teams like West Ham, teams like Newcastle who are really physical, then you will be second best. So... You know, they showed that in May when they went to Newcastle and won two 0 But I think it's a big test now to do it after, um, after a, such a painful defeat and such a poor performance, especially in the second half. In terms of the table, this is a really important one, isn't it? Because Arsenal know full well that Manchester City, Liverpool, and Aston Villa in fifth, they're all breathing down their necks and they're all expected to win this weekend. So it feels like a bit of a litmus test, doesn't it? 
Yeah, no, I think it's a it's a really important day um, in terms of where that top six, seven teams are, are going to be at the end of the season because, you know, last season Arsenal, you know, were front runners with only really City chasing them, whereas this year it's a lot, there's a lot stronger pack at the front. You've got Tottenham who have made an unbelievable start with Postacoglu. You've got Liverpool who, you know, Liverpool 2.0, who look like they're going to be there or thereabouts this season. So, you know, Newcastle need to try and keep touch with Aston Villa who are five points five points ahead so I think Newcastle can't afford to lose um, because that's quite a big gap eight points already um, but I think Arsenal as well psychologically after falling away at the end of last season I think if they start to feel a bit of gap uh, between them and, uh, and Spurs or even Man City and Liverpool then you know it puts so much pressure on every single game and I think that becomes mentally taxing for players when every game is a must win but I think what they were so good at last year was killing games early and it took the took the strain off them so um, yeah I think I think if they can get a, a result at St James's Park it will just hammer home the fact that they're definitely not going anywhere And on Newcastle this is a big game for them as well because they're currently outside the top four they do have some injury concerns as well but the extra added bonus I suppose of that victory against Manchester United was that it showed their squad depth didn't it? No definitely I mean you see 3-0 to, to, to Newcastle at Man U and you assume they've got a they got their full strength team out, but I mean, you look at the bench and who they brought on, and that wasn't the case. So they've got a real identity to them, and I think that's why even if they're missing three or four players, they still play in that same ferocious way. Um, just a nightmare to play against, really uncomfortable. And I think they'll try and do that to Arsenal again. It was a really feisty in May. It was a great, great game. Um, both teams really physical. It was end to end, loads of chances. So I'm expecting a pretty similar game. You're listening to the Daily Football Briefing from the Athletic. Jordan, thank you. Just to mark your card for the weekend, the live games on Sky on Sunday, Nottingham Forest against Aston Villa and Luton against Liverpool. Then, as I mentioned, the Monday night football, it's the leaders Tottenham against Chelsea and the return of Maurizio Pochettino to North London. You can read about that with Charlie Eccleshare on The Athletic today. Now, the big game in Germany this weekend is Borussia Dortmund against Bayern Munich. Saturday evening, 5.30 in the UK on Sky Sports. That's ESPN Plus in the States, 1.30 Eastern. It's the meeting of the big two, not the top two, though, at the moment. Bayern a second behind Bayer Leverkusen, with Xavi Alonso doing very, very well in the dugout. Dortmund are fourth. Let's find out how the two teams are shaping up ahead of the game, known as Der Klassiker, with our German football writer Seb Stafford-Bloor. First, Bayern. It's been a difficult week for them, hasn't it? It's a really interesting time for the game because they're both so flawed. Bayern come into the match off the back of a really, really dispiriting defeat to Saarbrücken in the Pokal. Saarbrücken are a, a third division team. Also, Matthias de Ligt is injured. Joshua Kimmich is suspended after his red card against Darmstadt. And that adds into you know, a picture that wasn't all that rosy to begin with. I mean, the defence has cohesion in issues. The midfield still feels imbalanced. I think Bayern's determination to do business on transfer deadline day, trying to sign Jan Polina from Fulham, describes how they feel their midfield looks at the moment. And nothing we've seen this season really really dispels the sense that they're not quite where they should be. And I think Dortmund are in much the same place. Okay, so although Harry Kane and the team have lost a trophy chance this week, 
His form in particular has been exceptional. 12 league goals from all over the pitch as we've seen since arriving from Spurs. Is his integration just simply going from strength to strength? Kane has integrated well, Adam, but there's still some way to go. I think what people get used to with Kane at Spurs was seeing him involved in almost every phase of their attacking play. So he was kind of the root of a lot of their moves. He was the punctuation point at the end of them. At Bayern, I think, because he doesn't have any natural understandings with some of these players, I think some of the combinations are quite basic. There has been a sort of a, the, a hint of chemistry with Lira Sané. They've had a couple of nice moves where Sané has pivoted around Kane, either like playing a ball towards him and then moving into space beyond him. Same's probably been true of Jamal Musiala since he returned from injury. But Kane, for the most part, is having to insert himself into Bayern's attacking play. So you'll see a move develop around him without him you know, perhaps participating in it and then interjecting himself at the end in the penalty box with a header or a late run or a one or two touch finish. So it's in a good place. There's still a lot of room for him to grow into though and it's um, it's by no means the finished product. So um, we're still really waiting for Kane to really be Kane at Bayern. Well, for Dortmund... They came so close to winning the title last season, didn't they? They've lost Jude Bellingham to Real Madrid as well. Are they still well set, do you feel, to be Bayern's closest challengers, albeit Bayer Leverkusen can't be discounted? Dortmund are one of their challengers, Adam. I don't know if they're going to be Bayern's closest challenger. I mean, at the moment, I, I would probably make Bayer Leverkusen favourite to win the Bundesliga. They're, they're playing by far the best football. They look the most powerful team in Germany. All of their individual players are playing to an extremely high level under Jabby Alonso. And I'm not sure that's really true of anybody else, even Bayern Munich. With Dortmund, I think there are a few questions. I, I think, can Julian Brandt stay fit? And, and can he stay influential? Can Felix Metzger develop quickly into the kind of number eight who could fill most of the gap left by Jude Bellingham? Don't know. Big question mark against that. Can Marcel Sabitzer reclaim some of the form he showed in Leipzig before he moved to Bayern and uh, went on loan to Manchester United? Can the Nico Schlotterbeck, Nicolas Soule, Mats Hummels defence, depending on which combination of those players Edin Terzic uses, can that be good enough across the course of a season they can compete with not just Bayern, but all of those other teams now. It, it really is a very interesting sort of four-way contest for the Bundesliga. And so far, I, there hasn't been really a signature Bundesliga performance from Dortmund. We've seen in the Champions League, they were excellent against Newcastle, but it's been very bitty in Germany domestically. And this could be the moment that changes. This could be the game in which they establish some credentials. Seb, thank you very much. Now, as promised, quick word on a story that features on The Athletic this Friday. Australia looked like they were going to go for the World Cup in 2034, but then, just like that Homer Simpson hedge gif, they quietly slipped away. It allowed Saudi Arabia to take the tournament. Why did it happen? And what does it mean for Australia's tournament chances in the future? Here's Jacob Whitehead. Australia have been very careful in this decision to make sure that they're seen to be doing the right thing. And so kind of the feeling is, is that with Australia withdrawing, they avoid annoying the other members of the AFC, the Asian Conference, who'd already thrown their support behind Qatar. And it means that there's less likely to be contenders from the AFC to compete for two other tournaments, which Australia wants to host, which is the 2026 Asian Women's Cup and the 2029 Club World Cup. There's not a guarantee that Australia are going to be able to host them and FIFA say there isn't going to be any preferential treatment, but it's kind of guaranteed that they are going to have more of a clear run at it. So kind of the way I've been describing it is kind of like 
Australia had this opportunity to be a spanner in the works, but ultimately that very rarely ends well for the spanner. And Australia just simply didn't want to put themselves in that position. They were diplomatic and very pragmatic. Well, there's more on that and the rest of the day's stories on the Athletic website and app. That's all for the Daily Football Briefing today. I'm Adam Leventhal. Your producer was Mike Zimmerman and the executive producer was Ben Green. Mike is going to be back with you in the hot seat on Monday. Look forward to that. If you want more on the weekend's Premier League action, you can catch the Athletic Football Podcast weekend preview. Again, that's with me. Thanks very much for listening. Have a great weekend. The Athletic.